And where do you see yourself in five years? Mm. And the big's like, I would like to have my own farm, so I'm you know? I mean, it's not going to happen. <laughs> That's the difference. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, Alex, Kent, and Nathan, are seeking to recover from bad ideas about God and recover the true faith. And today we're wrapping up our series. Our series has been Faith That Works. And the final episode is entitled At the Hour of My Death. Whoa, this is the final episode. (laughs) (laughs) So we're looking for a faith that works at the hour of our death. Is that right? Yes, it is. What if we had a faith that sort of worked for life, but not for death? Some people would seem to argue um, that they've got, you know, like a belief system that is working for life and, and that, but when they're dead, they're dead. That's just all there is. That's all. Well, I guess if that's good enough, I mean, if you just want to kind of get to the end and then like, well, that was a fun ride. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm skeptical as to whether something that doesn't account for death works, to be honest. Because uh, we all will die. Yeah. It is sort of the problem of, uh, as you put it a minute ago, Alex, the existential problem. Um, it's sort of the problem of human life. Yeah. I saw and, a really funny meme. It was like, how to adult? And it was like, uh, eat breakfast, go to work, do laundry. Don't let in the existential despair. <laughs> and then the next frame zooms right in on this and the sweat beads are coming up and it's like, don't let it in. <laughs> Do you think that's how most people are actually living their lives? Distracting themselves, busying themselves, trying to keep out the existential despair? Yeah. I think of Blaze Pascal. I just have to throw him in there because, right. you know, I have to name drop. But uh Were you friends? <laughs> yeah, I mean Blaze. We were way back to France, but um no, no, he, yeah, he he posits that the rich really are the most benefited, not simply because they're rich, because they are the most able to distract themselves, distract, to distract themselves, themselves from what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Which you know he he didn't use those those words, but it's that existential despair or existential crisis of knowing, oh my goodness, if I stop to really think about what my life is about, it's just too scary. I can't handle that. So I'm going to fill my time with, you know, Facebook or Netflix or, you know, whatever it is that we use to fill our, fill the time and space in because the alternative of, of having to stop and really look at what our life is about and where it's going, the trajectory of our life, it's, it's just too much to bear for most people. Yeah. It, I have a story that I like to tell of, of somebody I knew back way back when, um, and she was young lady had a job, say she was 22, 23, everything in her life was what you would say from the outside going well. Uh, she was young, attractive, making at least a decent income. And, uh, she would just live in a single life, had a couple of roommates. Um, but then the, the roommates both just as their lives were changing, I don't know if they got married or what, but they, they both moved out within say a few weeks of each other. And one roommate took the television. The other one took the stereo. (laughs) And uh, so she would come back to this apartment with no roommates and no television and no stereo. After two weeks, she became a Christian. (laughs) (laughs) 
that there's something about confronting that that void and and i her story I, is just very telling to me that if what you believe it can't it can't endure the silence you either don't believe it authentically or it's not giving the resources it's not confronting the hard questions and so our mortality is certainly this inevitable thing we're all marching toward and you can ignore it when you're young and i've decided and i hope i get some feedback from this i've decided that atheists are just people who are better at denial i hate to say that but that you know and they would say well they're braver they're facing reality and that we are not but they're you you have to be able to lie to yourself about the significance of your existence and the nature of it or you'll just need a bullet uh to be frank um and so i i've not heard very many honest atheists uh, you get this kind of smoke blown up your tailpipe about making the world a better place or drawing joy from the moment or all of this but uh i cannot find objective value in that we it, you can choose to find meaning choose to find purpose but how is choosing to find purpose any different from delusion you know if i can say well i just i'm gonna choose to call this hamburger filet mignon you know it's just like okay but it's still a hamburger right yeah but i've cho chosen to call it filet mignon and so i am much happier because i tell people that i eat filet mignon three times a week and i'm a happy person and we would tell them well you probably need to see a therapist um and yet without an actual objective reason to say that life matters then you you're really just you're lying to yourself and it seems like kind of the worst kind of deceit that i i can think of it does it doesn't seem that life works without some concept of what's next so yeah and i, I think this is if not the relevant question <laughs> definitely one of the most relevant questions i especially um especially now i mean i think every generation has to grapple with this in its own way but i think about my children you know generation z or whatever you want to call it we've had these conversations of wait why should i go to college and get a successful job that doesn't even look fun you know the, the, i want to be trapped in a corporate life for 30 years and and then what you know, they're, they're right. asking these questions that, you know, um, maybe previous generations we've taken for granted as, well, this is the best way to spend our time on earth. Um, but the, these are valid, valid questions. What, what is the purpose of life? Why would I want to do that? Isn't there more? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you can imagine standing in a crossroads and, and, um, all the destinations are your starting point, you know? So l let's say. We'll, we'll call the crossroads, I don't know, Bentonville. <laughs> and, and, and so you're standing here in Bentonville and, and you see all of these directional signs and, and every one of them say Bentonville, but they 
have different numbers of miles. Mm -hmm. And okay. so one of them is Bentonville, 10 miles. The other one is Bentonville, 1300 miles. <laughs> the other one is, you know, and, and you can't get off the road. You, you have to be on the road, but the destination is always going to be Bentonville. Which one would you take? Mm, let's not take the long one, I guess. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, it, it seems well, you're going to burn a bunch of gas and you're going to expend a lot of effort. You're not going to get much rest and you'll always be traveling and you'll end up right where you started. So which one do you want? So are you, that analogy is for the person who realizes life is meaningless. And so why try, why work hard, why try to succeed and achieve? Right. Let's yeah. take the easy route. Let's just get high. Let's just. Let's just keep our minds off of how pointless this is. And yeah. no matter what we do, we don't actually move. Yeah. We're not actually going anywhere. So why make the effort? Right. And right. I think that's what our kids, the, you know, sure. are, makes are asking. <laughs> yeah. It makes a ton of sense. And that's been, you know, over the generations, you have the golf movement. Uh, people were just like, it's all pointless. Why do it? Um, there's this existential despair, dread. And I mean, suppose it was a, not a, not a car journey, but a walking journey or a running journey, you know, would you be motivated to try to be the first one back to Bentonville, <laughs> you know, work really hard. Uh, you, you do you want to compare how far you went to get back to Bentonville? Uh, if life began in non-existence and it will, uh, end in that, then why, why expend a lot of energy to get right back where you were? So yeah, it, uh, it, it, that to me, that makes the most sense as far as an approach to life without a hope for anything after this is to do as little as possible or kill yourself. Um, and I know that's probably, I'm going to have to put some kind of warning on this or take this back out, but, uh, cause we're not supposed to say that, but I just, I have a hard time getting around that it eventuality and, and maybe other people I yet to find anybody. And I've tried to talk to a lot of smart people who has come up with some convincing reason to live other than just some mind game that they're playing. So, you know, it's like, I turn it around on them because if they say, well, I can't believe you believe in a God. And I'm like, well, yeah, and here's why. And they're like, well, whatever gets you through the day. And so their mm -hmm. implication is that I'm defective and I have this coping mechanism. And they're like, well, I'm not going to deprive you of that because you are defective. But when they explain why they live and I'm just like, well, whatever gets you through the day, mm -hmm. because it's, you know, it, it's fantastical, um, and nonsensical and just. I, I couldn't live knowing that I'm lying to myself. But apparently a lot of people can. Well, they, they choose not to believe that they're lying to themselves. And that's, that's right. the that's, thing. That's back to the nature uh. of, uh, being distracted. Mm -hmm. yes. Those, those who are the most distracted are, are, are the most benefited in, in this society. And so I, I think that's why we continue to always see, you know, here in this, especially in this age that we live in. The distractibility quotient. Um, I mean, especially now with the cell phone. I, don't get me wrong. I love cell phones. I love technology. I work with it every day. But it has allowed us to be more distracted than ever uh -huh. and avoid the deeper questions uh -huh. of our existence. Uh -huh. And yet we hit these crises in our life where the distractions are removed or exposed for what they are. And we come 
face to face with our mortality, with the meaninglessness of life, or with the question about what is the meaning and the purpose of life. It happens. Uh, and that we have these moments. And at what point, I guess the question for today is how is, the, how is it that Christianity is a faith that works in the face of our mortality? So what happens when COVID turns your entire world upside down or sickness, right? Or Russia invades your hometown yeah. or, you know, fill, fill in the blank. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, you know, COVID is not the first uh, pandemic that humankind has faced. And in, uh, I think I can never remember which one was the first, the plague of Justinian or the Antonine plague, but I'm going to say that during the plague of Justinian, which was in the second century, um, everyone was fleeing the cities, including the physicians. And so people were dying alone of this disease and Christians were coming from the countryside and moving into the cities to care for the sick and the dying, and in many cases dying next to them, the, the people that they'd been caring for. Uh, I, I say that because it, in that time, and I, and I don't think we've really evolved since then morally, um, that if there was going to be mercy, if there was going to be concern for the fellow man, we must transcend the fear of death or when it's really most needed, we will abandon one another, prey on one another. What I see in the gospel is a validation of human worth, a reason to hold to the worth of the individual and to the self. Um, and at the same time, the ability to relinquish my own interests for the sake of something better. So there's this healthy approach to death that it's out there. It's not like something that we would seek for its own sake, but neither is it the final decider. Because if it is, if, if that's the way we live our lives that I will do up until I'm, my life is threatened, then, then death becomes, you know, staying alive, survival becomes my highest value. But then that returns me to basically just an animal at the end of the day. That if there are really ultimately no higher values than survival, then, then my drives, my purpose, my goals are just add-ins on top of what my dog or my cat or my hamster or my goldfish are living their lives for. And so. And, and, and that I, will and, be reflected in how you treat people. Absolutely. And, and I don't think that it's a co coincidence that many current, currently many atheists are also, um, very much animal rights activists. You because know, there's no difference. Because there's no difference. Uh, and, 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 and I'm not saying that they were not somehow connected to other biological life and we don't have things in common with them, but I'm saying that, look, uh, even if a pig is as smart as a dog, okay. It's going to eat and drink and poop and have sex and reproduce, and then it's going to die. You know, you don't walk up to it and say, so, you know, what are you, what are you thinking? Where do you see yourself in five years? And, and the pig's like, I would like to have my own farm. So I'm hurt, hurting, you know, I mean, it's not going to happen. <laughs> That's the difference. It's, it's this ability to ideate into the future to, to set goals and to 
um, imbibe some sort of a meaning or purpose or a drive that transcends eating and sleeping and, you know, all, all the biological functions that there are even emotional functions. I mean, I think the dogs are certainly truly happy to see us when we get there, you know, but they also are not dreaming of their future with us or mm -hmm. whatever, you know, that there's, it's not that the pig is deprived. We, you know, we don't stand over the pig and go, you had so many things you were going to do with your life, you know, and he's dead. <laughs> and, and, and so that to me, there is a difference, but, but that difference isn't just contrived. It's not that we've decided that this is important. It's that it truly is important. It's worth living for. It's worth dying for. Uh -huh. But without a hope for something after this, nothing's worth dying for. And so nothing really makes us somehow have, we have no dignity at all. How is it that having a hope beyond, um, death, a hope of life beyond death, uh, justifies, um, living, uh, a, a good life, living a loving life, a, a life of service now, how does it work? We're saying it, we're saying that it does. Have we yet explained how, how it does? I don't know. Maybe I, I think, I, I, I mean, I, at the base, I, I think life is affirmed. Human life is affirmed through Christ's death on the cross because he's paid for this life. <laughs> you know, he, he came and lived this life. He paid for this life. Um, his resurrection is the hope of the new life. It's the dawning of the new day. But it is through carrying his cross and all of that that we become prepared for that new day and that we participate with him in the validation of, of human life here. And so that's what I would say. It's just, it's important, um, because it's been paid for that, you know, something's only worth what you give for it, what you pay for it. And so there, uh, there must be some exchange somewhere where human life has, has been assigned a price tag. And so for me, it is at the cross, it's the gospel. And so that's how I would see it. Uh, I would see that, you know, Paul talks about being torn to live as Christ, to die as gain. And so that opportunity to live as Christ is, is valuable here, but then to die as gain is also true. Yeah. So let, let's unpack that a little bit because this is the final episode and we've We've peered into the pit of despair <laughs> <laughs> from which no one ever escaped. I don't even think about yeah. it. Yeah. COVID has struck home. Uh, a loved one has died or nearly died. I'm facing uh, my mortality. Yeah. And the mortality Anx of everyone. Anxiety's at all time high. The mortality of everyone I love. Yeah. And Christ and the gospel um, give me reason to have hope. Yeah, because maybe somebody's listening to this podcast and they have wrestled with that and their distractions aren't cutting at it anymore. They can't, you can't watch enough Netflix. You can't, you know, scroll enough Instagram or, or whatever it is or TikTok. You know, it's, it's that point of knowing I'm just, I'm just distracting myself from the inevitable because I'm too scared to look. Mm -hmm. So what is the alternative? What is the gospel and bring to us that, 
totally transforms us from uh, despair to hope. Yeah. Yes, can me or well, I mean, I, I I thought that you know Nathan, you were you were talking about how the gospel affirms life. Christ died for us. Christ shows our value. There's and let's 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 talk about that. But also let's talk about this element of the fear of the Lord, the day of judgment. There's this sense of um, um, of accountability for our lives, right? If if death is the end, there's no accountability, right? Yeah. But if there's a judgment after death, then there's accountability for how who we became, right? And there's that element as well that's 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 in the Christian gospel. Well, someone think- would say someone would say that that doesn't make you a good person. That just makes you self-interested in a different mm-hmm. way uh and they may be I'm just right. trying to avoid the flames of hell right mm-hmm. right so there's accountability in that sense i guess but um uh, plato in his republic or socrates in plato's republic um i i commend that to anybody who is either you know if you're questioning your faith or if you're not i don't really care you should read it in the republic the republic is really it, I would say it functions like the Tanakh, the, the Hebrew scriptures for the pagans. And, uh, you see that the writers of the new Testament are, they saw it that way too, because Luke, who is writing to someone who is an educated Roman Theophilus, he depicts the centurion at the foot of the cross. And Christ, you know, dies and says into your hands, I commend my spirit and the darkness and the earthquake and all that. Right. In, in the other gospels, yeah, at least in Matthew and Mark, the other synoptics that they say this centurion, they, he's there and they cast him as saying, surely this was the son of God. Now, Luke has a very high Christology. He thinks that Jesus is God. You see it throughout his gospel. But in this moment, this centurion says, surely this was a righteous man. And that is the topic of Plato's Republic. What is the righteous man? Is there, is it worthwhile to be righteous or not? Is it better to be unrighteous, but only appear righteous? So the ring on the Lord of the Rings, it's styled after Gyges ring as this um, the scenario is posited by one of um, Socrates's debate partners. So I think it was probably Glaucon at this point. And he's, he's talking about, or that's that guy that starts with a T. He's the real detractor. Anyway, so this guy is saying, look, there was this guy who had a ring. He could be invisible. And um, what reason does he have to be righteous? Mm-hmm. That the only time someone's righteous is if someone is evaluating their be- someone your behavior. And therefore, we know. And, and the fact that we have to teach people to be virtuous means that it is more fun to be unvirtuous, that the intrinsic reward for humankind is in meanness and selfishness, and that these other values are only impressed on us as a requirement of our society. And if we could somehow convince our society that we were righteous, but but get away with unrighteousness that we would be more successful in life than someone who was truly righteous. And, and it gets down to this point where it says, here's what ha- will happen to the righteous man. 
that the man who is righteous, really righteous, but is thought to be unrighteous, will suffer all manner of humiliations, and he will be stripped and beaten and hung on a pole. Mm-hmm. That's what it says in the Republic. In the Republic. Oh, that sounds like... Sounds familiar. Sounds like uh, Jesus. Right, yeah. I think it also said to hell, have his eyes poked out, but that wasn't, uh, thankfully, happened to Christ. But at any rate, you know, that there's this, they're saying society will destroy someone who's truly righteous, but they have deemed unrighteous. And, and, and so, but Socrates is, his counterpoint is, is that righteousness has its own reward. Righteousness is worth pursuing for its own sake. Now... I know a lot of Western liberal type people would say, yeah, I agree. But Socrates doesn't have the luxury of the academy agreeing with him. He, in, in, as Plato cast it, he has some really intelligent, astute, hardcore critics who are coming at him. And, and he says, righteousness is, is worthwhile. Virtue is worthwhile for its own sake. And, and they said, why and at the end of the book he comes down to because the gods are watching and he says this he says at the end at the end of it all all things will work together for good for those who love virtue for the gods are themselves virtuous and so they will reward such a one and so he tells the story of somebody who was died in battle and was resurrected and went to this other realm and was rewarded by the gods for his righteousness. All that to say is that if you begin with the question of, is there a reason to live well in this life, to be good for goodness sake, you know, not for presents on Christmas morning, but for whatever it may be, the, the smartest guy out there, you know, in that, in that time period finally came down to the concept of something on the other side of the grave, that all things work together for the good of this person, that even though their life may be filled with hardship and tragedy and setbacks, that on the whole, their life will have been worthwhile. But, it, but that can't be true if the grave is annihilation. I've tried to de- I've tried to dismantle Socrates' arguments or why he got to where he got. I can't. They're smarter people than I am, and I'm I'm happy for somebody to to correct me. But it seems to me that here in a pagan work where there's not a robust sense of resurrection, there's the belief that death is into a shadow land that really nobody wants to go. Um, that that was the that was the world that Socrates lived in. Socrates lived in a world where, you know, Homer had decided what the gods do. (laughs) And Socrates is like, that can't be the gods. That would mean the gods are worse than us. (laughs) You know, how could we possibly be virtuous if the gods are like those people? Uh, And so Socrates was seeing it. He was doing the work, but without the Christian Bible, without the Jewish faith, he's just, he's simply by thinking through, is this worth doing? Is there such a thing as beauty? Is there such a thing as virtue? Does any of this matter? The only place he could go is there must be someone who is virtuous, who is watching, who will vindicate the life of someone who does good. And so it's not necessarily so much the accountability 
but it is if the if life endures and there is a realm where righteousness reigns, righteousness is worth pursuing. Is that if you were going to ask Socrates? Cool. So, so, so Socrates and Paul, you know, they never talk to each other. <laughs> no. I don't guess they were even alive at the same apart. yeah, yeah at the yeah. same time. But somehow they they um it seemed like they were thinking along the same lines coming from different directions um br bringing that back down I, I think that that's good I'm, I'm just thinking about you know the the people people in our neighborhood <laughs> yeah the people that were, the people that we're talking to uh today um what what does that what does that mean for you know each of us as we we're, we're dealing with life's daily challenges and, and you know the purpose of this this podcast and a lot of what we're doing is speaking to people who um who have been challenged in their faith maybe th their faith has been a tradition for them maybe it's been something that at one time was a source of great encouragement and hope but now they're struggling you know for various reasons and maybe they're not sure they believed what they used to believe you know so what you know, what, what is the, the hope that we can bring down, you know, to today's, today's trials? Yeah. I don't know. I can't say. So all I can do is speak from my own doubt. I just said when we were having coffee earlier that I'm probably 40% an atheist. Um, and I, I don't say that proudly and just say that most of my life, I've just questioned things. I'm, I'm incredulous by nature. Uh, and, and so let me, let me just share my own struggles. So here are my struggles if, without the Bible. And, and I think it's important for us to ask, is, does our faith have any validity if we didn't have a Bible? Because it's just logically, um, you know, inherently um, fallacious to say, well, I believe it because this book says it. Well, why do you say, why do you believe the book? Because you know, I believe it. And it, it's just circular. Because it's, it's God's word. Yeah. It's, it's, that's just folly. I, yeah. I, I can't, I would never fault anybody for criticizing that approach. You know, it's just like, because the Bible told me so. It's like, but that's a faith proposition too. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got to start from something. We've got to build this from something. And so uh, if I'm just asking, if I'm looking at the data available to everybody and I would say, okay, here's, here's what I see. I have no memories from before I was born. Therefore, my consciousness is a product of my biological existence. Is everybody okay with that yet mm -hmm. so far? Mm -hmm. Therefore, <laughs> by in conclusion, when my biological existence ends, so will my consciousness and death is annihilation. Does anybody have, do you have a counterpoint without the Bible? Without the Bible, without the Bible, do you have a counterpoint just on the data available to everyone without reaching into a faith proposition? Can are you, you saying, are you saying like that in a, in a, are you talking about a scenario where Christ died and rose again? We just don't have a book that tells us about it. Well, that's a faith proposition. You're taking somebody's word for it. Have you mm -hmm. met him? Is he, you know, did he sell you coffee this morning and see your barista? I mean, that's a. That could any number of things. And I know we, we talk like, oh, it, it, you know, it, it could only be because no one would ever make this up. Yeah, they would. Have you ever seen how religions start? You know, it, look at how the Seventh-day Adventists started. You've got to have a big, 
built up eschatological hope that is disappointed and then you rewrite your hope and everybody adopts it. That's how religions are born. It's very plausible that that's how Christianity was born. Okay, I'm just, I'm pushing on the other side because I hate easy answers. They are, they invalidate both the questioner and the position you're supposing. If you just say, well, because they would never make this up. Yeah, they would. <laughs> People do. Okay, that's just not, that's not convincing. Uh, it's okay, uh, maybe, uh, but it's not definitive. I'm just saying, is it plausible? What, what helps you and I, the idea that somebody rose from the dead is not plausible, no matter how many historical arguments you make. Okay. I mean it, because it's never happened in anyone's actual established historical, without any pictures of this or anything else that somebody who is really, really dead three days later gets up on their own and says, I'm fine. I'm just going to go for a walk. You know, it just doesn't happen. And then people witness them in, uh, entering into Right, realm. right. So if I say, if I say, you know, in the third age, a pink elephant flew down from the sky and, you know, took a crap on the fertile crescent and all of a sudden rice and, you know, he's the pink elephant of rice. Uh, that's as plausible because um, it's just hearsay. Okay. It's not, I mean, and I can give you reasons why it's not, but I, but from a, a skeptic's point of view, it is. Okay. Because it's, it's hearsay and it's hearsay asserting something that has never been seen since and is undocumented and is biologically impossible. Why do we believe this? You know, that to some degree it has to, I think it has to be a choice we have because nobody knows what happens after we die. Um, but I can, I can back myself out of it a little bit better than that. Um, would you guys like to take a crack at it first? Seems like you're going somewhere. Dude. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm going to a hole in the ground, but, but here, here are our choices. Okay. I, I just want us to be really clear that it doesn't, we don't have to necessarily suppose that, that there should be objective good. Maybe we could just suppose that there's not. And let's just watch out for those serial killers. <laughs> you know, I mean, let's, let's ask whether conscience is actually worth retaining or whether it's better to ignore our conscience and to be brutal for the greater good. Maybe it's better to engineer the death of billions of people so that the planet can heal from climate change. Okay, Nietzsche. Right? Mm -hmm. Right. Babe. I'm just saying, what, why, do, why do we prefer one over the other? Why would we argue for one over the other? I, I So I... I believe I've established and I think it's true that it's impossible to have objective morality without something beyond this land that we live in. Okay. And I, I think that argument is settled. If you want to push back, go ahead. Um, but I can't, I can't, I haven't been able to find it. And, um, I, I kind of find that when people try, this is kind of sad, but at any rate, so that does it, but maybe we don't need that. Maybe that, maybe it's something we wish were there. Maybe it's a, a, something that's necessary for society to function, but we're advanced enough. Maybe we don't need society to function. Maybe we can just all be plugged into the computers and kept alive, you know, or maybe we could all find a really fun way to be euthanized um, and, you know, uh, and just be done with it. All of those are possibilities. So. The question is, do we, do we need some kind of objective 
basis for morality, for needing to be good, for having a reason to exist other than to just biological survival. Right. Need, Nathan, you're saying we do need that. No, well, we need a reason Nathan. if we're going to be moral. I'm just saying we don't ne- maybe we don't necessarily need to be moral. That's okay. I, I don't want to assume that we have to be moral. I'm just saying don't pretend to be moral if you don't have a basis for your morality because you're just lying to yourself. Um, so here's, here's my counter argument. So my argument for why death is, is it is I have no memories from my previous life. Uh, it, you know, if I was reincarnated, then that's a pointless thing. Honestly, frankly, just shut up. <laughs> if, if you don't have a memory of it, you died. It's, there's no such thing as reincarnation. If there's no real cogent memory of it, your consciousness is all that matters. And if you can't at least sit here and, and have the consciousness of having a previous life, even if you don't have the memories of it, then your consciousness didn't survive the previous life. Reincarnation is folly. Even if it were true, it would simply be some sort of a recycling program out there and not for the sake of my growth as an entity. Okay. So let's not talk about that, but if there were a preexistent life and I just don't remember it, well, that's that again, it's a faith proposition. From what I can tell, my consciousness began at some point after I was born, you know, whenever I started making memories and being cognizant. And that's really all that matters. Uh, if that's the case, then it's bound up in my biological life. And at when my biological life ends, my consciousness will as well. Okay. So here's the counter argument. The counter argument is, um, I, it's unlikely that human, that consciousness is the byproduct of natural processes because it is a qualitative jump. So we already have AI that are smarter than us. There's an engineer out there recently, and I made the news who is like, oh, it's alive. It's not. Okay. It's, you know, it's a chat bot. It's supposed to sound like a human. That's its job. And so you say, are you a human? It's a yes. <laughs> That's what it's programmed to do. But it's not like, oh no, what do I do? <laughs> he asked me if I was a human and my program says I'm supposed to say yes, but it's not true. And the program says I'm supposed to say Tell the truth. Oh no. You know, the, the robot, I promise you, the AI is not doing that. Um, it doesn't have consciousness. Consciousness is not about intelligence. It's not a qualitative phenomenon. And so it cannot be programmed or created. We have AI right now that is way smarter. Like, I mean, light years smarter than the human mind. Okay. And so we have made something intelligent, more intelligent than we are thousand times more intelligent than we are still not conscious. So it's not like, you know, we're conscious in the way that humans are because the dog's IQ is 12 and ours is a hundred. Okay. Cause the AI's IQ is 10,000, right? So it's not about intelligence. There's something else. If consciousness came from something, I would, I would posit that it was a consciousness. Okay. And if the consciousness that brought forth consciousness did so on purpose, that that consciousness has reason to retain said consciousness, <laughs> that, that there is some sort of a, a creator or a progenitor ownership that is there. I don't know that that's the case, but that was what I would say. So for instance, before you had children, your life was probably pretty amazing. 
And then everything went to crap because these kids came along, right? And it just got harder and you just had all these responsibilities and they're a pain in the butt. And yet you can't imagine a life without them, a life without them. That there's something transcendent about our kids that it's all, it's almost like they've always been. Like we can't imagine life without them, even though we had a life without them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I think God is like that with us. That even though we did not exist, our consciousness didn't exist before our biological existence, that we are a consciousness in a biological vessel here, but that God who brought this consciousness about wants to retain it because he is a creator, just like if you were, unless you're Banksy, <laughs> to create some work of art that was and especially impressive and you would not want to just wad it up and burn it or whatever. Or if you're a parent and you give birth to a child or you produce a child and you can't imagine being without them. And, and those kind of analogies are actually used in scripture. So my point is number one, there's gotta be something beyond this, or there's no reason to be moral. <laughs> we really need morality to be frank, but, but number two, I think we have a good reason to believe that there's something beyond this. Now, what that is. If we give that there must be something beyond this, now we have to ask what is the best description of what is beyond this? I would contend that it's the gospel simply because the gospel announces that it is a return to human life, bodily human life, as we were created initially. And that makes the most sense to me if there's a creator who doesn't make mistakes. And it would seem that a transcendent being at least would be much less likely to get his design wrong in the first place. Uh -huh. You know? And so to me that, that offers a very rich hope. Uh, the, the idea of being in a, in a shadow land or a disembodied state, um, in, in some alternative existence, even if it was a higher plane or more enlightened, but I can't visualize it. And so it doesn't offer much hope here. The Christian hope seems to be something we can get hooks into that can affect our behavior here, that can give us the ability to, to walk into a town rife with plague, you know, and, and show mercy to others and to transcend this panicked drive to continue existing here, you know. So brought it back, brought it back mm, to the you ancient did. plague. Yeah, that's good. So the Christian hope is the hope of resurrection, the hope of the renewal of the, of the created universe. Yeah, man. That's exciting to me. I didn't know, you know, I, I was never too jazzed about the eternal worship service mm -hmm. in this ethereal realm. Uh, that didn't, that didn't do much for me. Um, but the idea of, of living a physical life with some upgrades, man, that's, I'm down and that's a it. faith that works. That's, that's, uh, you can face death. Uh, the, the imp your impending death and, uh, find hope for your life in the face of death. If you have the promise of resurrection, that's good. Thanks guys for joining us for our series. Stay tuned for more. Uh, again, uh, shoot us a message. If you've got a question or, or a topic you'd like for us to address. Thank you very much. Adios.